Welcome to the Plant Pod. Grow your mind, feed your soul. I'm your host, Carly Bodrug, journalist turned food blogger and the founder of the popular plant-based brand, Plant You. Today's podcast interview reshaped how I think about communities and myself as an individual. You might be thinking, what the heck, because we're going to be talking all about the incredible world of bees. You see, there are a lot of powerful lessons us as human beings can learn from these insects, and it's almost mind-boggling the impact they have on our food systems and overall function in the world. For this episode, I was able to sit down with one of the world's leading pollination and bee experts, Mark Winston, who is a Canadian biologist and scientist and the author of the Governor General's literary award-winning book, Bee Time, Lessons from the Hive. He's currently a professor and senior fellow at Simon Fraser University. We explore why the honeybee population is declining, the incredibly important role bees play in our ecosystem, what we can take away from bees as human beings, and whether or not honey should be considered vegan. If you are vegan and avoid honey because you consider it an animal product, I'll be really interested to hear your opinion after listening to this podcast because mine definitely shifted based on Mark's knowledge of the subject, so stay tuned for that. Before we get started, I want to say thank you for your support of the pod this far. If you enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review to help boost our podcast rankings. It means so much to us. Of course, it's also lovely to hear any feedback in my Instagram direct messages or in your stories if you're inclined to share. Mark, our guest today, doesn't have Instagram, but I've linked his amazing books in the show notes. Without further ado, welcome, Mark, to the Plant Pod. Let's talk all about the bees. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. So you've been studying bees for decades, and I'm super interested what made you want to dedicate your life's work to learning about bees and teaching others about them? Well, initially, uh, nothing. I wasn't actually, uh, didn't, I didn't get into, um, into my research and studies and moving on in education for bees. I really had one overwhelming interest in life, and that was to become a tropical biologist and have adventures in the jungle. And uh, I had happened to have had some experience in entomology. And um, the university I applied to for my PhD, the University of Kansas, had just received a big grant to study killer bees in South America. So I heard South America, and that's all I cared about. So I went out there and I did indeed go down to South America and study killer bees. But it wasn't until I got there and really started working with bees that they um, became such an integral and formative part of my life. The, um, I just remember so vividly the first time I went into a beehive. It was one of those experiences where life just slows down for you. I have no idea why. I wasn't really... Initially, I was quite afraid because these were killer bees. They had a reputation and I was worried about getting stung. But as soon as I opened the hive and the colony we were in that day was quite calm, everything just slowed down. I was completely present. I could just just really had an intuitive understanding for what the bees were doing. And as I took the frames out one by one and inspected them, my curiosity took over. So I think it was that mix of curiosity, but also some... I hesitate to use the word because it might be misinterpreted, but I'll use it. Spiritual. There was just some spiritual connection I felt with bees. And um, 
that has stayed with me and grown throughout my life. And you talk about killer bees. I mean, is there a specific type of bee that you have studied and honed in on most? Honeybees, which the, the killer bees are just a subspecies of honeybee. This, the same species as the honeybees we have here in, in North America, but just um, they came from Africa and they are a bit more aggressive. But most of my research, particularly in the early years, was on honeybees. It was on the biology of bees, how they communicate, uh, management of bees, um, issues about how colonies grow and how they reproduce and swarm. And a bit later in life, I became interested in bees more broadly. And we began studying wild bees. There's about 20,000 species of bees in the world. Most of them are solitary. And we began studying their relationship to the environment, how they pollinate, why they might be important. And that got me into a lot of research about the problems in our current managed pollination systems, which rely on honeybees and the advantages of using the more natural systems of wild bees. So as my career progressed, my um, interest grew and deepened to include uh, bees beyond the honeybee. So we see like a lot of campaigns or people talking about save the bees. How integral are bees to the functioning of our ecosystem? Uh, I cannot stress enough how integral they are. They, um, they pollinate. And roughly a third of our food crops are pollinated by bees. And without bees, we just wouldn't have fruits, we wouldn't have berries, we wouldn't have a lot of vegetables. And um, we would have very limited food, probably limited to, uh, at least plant-based, would be limited to what is wind-pollinated, things like wheat and corn. But they are also absolutely critical ecologically, again, because they pollinate and they pollinate so many important plants and so many ecosystems. The world as we know it uh, botanically would just not exist if it were not for bees. It would be a very sparse and very deportment world we would live in. So um, integral, essential, they're absolutely necessary uh, for um, our health, our survival and the survival of the uh, ecosystems as we know them. From my understanding, we are seeing the dwindling of the bee populations. Is this true? And what are some of the reasons that could be? Bees are dying. Bees are dying all over the world and they're dying in large numbers. And it's not only honeybees, it's wild bees as well. Uh, there have been dramatic decreases in wild bee populations all over the world. Honeybees, somewhere between 30 and 45% of colonies die every year, manage colonies, and have to be replaced by beekeepers. The reasons are um, complex. It's not a multi, it's a multifactorial thing. It's not just one thing that's keeping bees, that's killing bees. But if I had to ascribe the demise of bees to any one thing, I would call it agriculture. Uh, bees are victims of heavy pesticide use. And that's particularly nefarious because insecticides, which are used heavily in agriculture to kill insects, of course, they also kill bees, which are insects. And so direct death due to pesticides is a problem, but a lot of pesticides are herbicides and they kill weeds. And that leads to a second major issue for bees, which is lack of nutritional diversity. Bees are now faced with very monochrome 
areas in agriculture in agricultural systems where there's just one crop growing and all the weeds are killed. And so the diverse pollen and nectar sources that they rely on, particularly in the wild, are no longer uh, available. There's also a lot of uh, diseases, pests, and parasites that have been spread throughout the world by uh, you know, human-assisted movement. And those interact with the other two issues, pesticides and um, nutritional deficiencies to create a perfect storm of problems for bees. I've, uh, I wrote a book called Bee Time Lessons from the Hive. And in that book, I refer to this as uh, a thousand little cuts. You know, we can, uh, bees and most systems are quite resilient and can withstand a lot of um, perturbations. But we're at a point with bees where they're beyond the thousandth little cut. And there's so many pesticides, there's so many nutritional problems, so many diseases and pests and parasites that they're no longer able to bounce back. And so that resilience has uh, essentially disappeared. And so that is why they are disappearing all over the planet. So this paints quite a grim picture. And I'm wondering if you have witnessed any sort of solution to turning it around for the bee population, and I guess in turn for us as well. Yeah, sorry to be such a downer. I'm actually a very, <laughs> op I'm actually a very optimistic person. Uh, I see this situation realistically, but I have great faith that we will um, do better. I, I grew up in um, Cleveland, Ohio, and on the banks of the Cuyahoga River, which when I left town in 1968, I left to go to university. I believe that year or the year after, the Cuyahoga River actually caught on fire. It was that polluted. And since that time, it's been cleaned up and people can swim in it now. I um, also recall acid rain as a problem that was destroying Canadian lakes and um, due to a lot of environmental advocacy and awareness and good government action, that problem has largely diminished. So in my lifetime, I've seen a lot of problems get solved. So for that reason, I feel confident. The solutions for bees are really pretty straightforward. Um, we really have to move to much more sustainable agriculture, uh, much more diverse agricultural environments, considerably less if if no pesticide use, um, those two steps alone would allow bees to recover. Uh, we really need to diversify habitat so that wild bees can thrive in and around agricultural systems. There's also a lot of things that people can do in their own backyards, planting diverse flowers, not using pesticides. Don't mow your lawn so often, Let that dandelion and clover bloom at least before you mow so the bees can get their nectar and pollen sources. So even in cities, which by the way, have very robust and diverse uh, bee species, uh, oddly enough, you, you wouldn't think cities would be a great place for bees, but they are. Uh, there's a lot we can do even as urban residents to um, enhance bee populations. When I posted this in my question box that I was interviewing a bee expert for the podcast, I had a lot of people ask who are in apartments what they can be doing for the bees. So are there certain plants or certain things that people can be doing to help kind of encourage the bee population? Anything that bees pollinate, you can you know put some tomato plants out on your balcony, put some herbs, some uh, plants like heather are really good for bees. Um, most vegetables, are bee pollinated and the bees benefit from the pollen and the nectar. Um, so even, even on a balcony, you can put up little bee houses, not necessarily for honeybees, 
but for some of the wild bees like the orchard mason bees that nest in tiny little straw holes, holes that you can put straws in, in well, you drill into wood and the bees will, will nest in those. Those, those bees are almost never sting. They're very docile. And you can just put these bee apartment houses up right on your own apartment balcony. You could even keep honeybees on your apartment balcony if you're so inclined and your neighbors don't complain. There's really no, lots of people keep bees, honeybees on balconies and up on roofs and they do just fine. You mentioned something earlier that I want to circle back on about switching to potentially wild bees pollinating as a more sustainable option. Can you delve a little more into that? Well, there are thousands of wild bee species around the world and quite many of those here in Canada. They nest in usually solitary. Most of them live by themselves. They'll dig a little hole in the dirt or they'll nest in a hollow twig or log. Some of them are social like bumblebees, which tend to build their nests in larger hollows like abandoned uh, rodent nests, for example. They will, um, and they're excellent pollinators. On a bee-to-bee basis, wild bees are probably better pollinators than honeybees are. Honeybees have the advantage that you can build large colony populations and you can move them in and out of an area. But wild bees, bee for bee, generally pollinate flowers much more effectively. Uh, The problem with wild bees is they are extremely susceptible to pesticides because you can't move them. They nest where they nest. And if they're nesting anywhere in or around agriculture, then they'll have a very hard time surviving the onslaught of pesticides in modern uh, agricultural systems. They also need nesting sites. And the habitat disruption that modern agriculture causes destroys many of the nesting sites that wild bees might use. So for both those reasons, they are um, not as diverse and abundant as they need to be to be good commercial pollinators in agriculture. But if we, uh, (coughs) excuse me, if we change our agricultural systems to be more sustainable in those ways, uh, the bees will come back, they will thrive. And that's, um, would be good for agriculture It would be good for the health of our environment as well. When I was looking into your books, I saw that you talk a lot about how bees mirror how humans operate in society and we go through the same impacts. And you've got to think that with bees dwindling because the impact pesticides are having on their populations, that there has to be a correlation to how that's impacting our health as well. Do you see that? You know, there's been very... um... Very little research into the uh, what I would call the synergistic effects of pesticides on people. There's been research on one pesticide. Here's what it would do if a person comes into contact with it. And here's the level at which it is harmful. And then they go out to prove that that level is um, not present, that the pesticide in the environment and in humans is below the critical threshold for human impact. And then we think it's safe. But what we've learned from bees is that one plus one does not equal two. Um, Bees are exposed to myriad pesticides. There are five or 10 or 20 or 30 pesticide residues found in a typical beehive. And usually every one of those residues is below the level that would harm bees. It's thought to harm bees. But what we've learned is that they're synergistic that 
they add up to more than one plus one equals two, but they might add up to one plus one equals five or 10 or 20. So that it's the interaction between the pesticides that causes them to have a much more severe impact on bee health than any one pesticide would alone. And it's not even additive. It's that word synergy is quite important because it does mean that um, the interaction between them creates a much greater impact than any additive effect of each one separately. And so um, that's stuff we do not know for humans. Nobody's ever studied that. So all of us have pesticide residues in our bodies. And um, the regulators tell us that each pesticide is there at a level too low to have any negative effects. But I asked the question, so you've got six or seven different pesticide residues in your body and they're all there at levels below adversarial impact. What happens when they interact with each other? What are the synergistic effects? That's what we don't know. We're kind of offshooting from the topic here now, but I'm interested from your day-to-day life, is there things you do to help kind of reduce or offset that pesticide load? Well, I live a very privileged life. I have a good job and I'm paid well. And I can buy organic because I can afford it. So I buy organic. And um, I believe that's healthier for me. But I particularly believe it's healthier for the environment because organic practices are are pesticide. Well, I would say pesticide free, but the pesticides they use have extremely low or no environmental impacts. And and organic organic farms by nature, because they use so few pesticides, have to be diverse. The only way to have productive agriculture in an organic system is to diversify. You can't plant a huge monocropped acreage of corn and expect it to survive without pesticides. Uh, It just won't, there's too many pests. But you can plant corn mixed in with soybeans, mixed in with onions, mixed in with tree crops in much smaller diversified and well thought through plantings and not require pesticides to produce a good productive healthy crop. And so part of the reason I buy organic is to support that kind of diversified sustainable agriculture, even beyond whatever health impacts the um, eating organic might have in terms of reduced pesticide loads. Reduced pesticide, you know, when I was in university, I went to Boston University and I did a project on uh, organic lettuce. I was an undergraduate student. I was in Boston. I went down to the Wareham Cranberry Research Station because they had a um, gas chromatograph there, this new machine that you could use, which was quite rare at the time, to uh, assess low levels of chemicals and things. And I did this project where I compared the amount of DDT, uh, which was banned, but still in the environment, and its breakdown products in organic lettuce from a, I think it was from a company called Airwan, E-R-E-W-O-H-N, it was an organic, uh, places sold organic fruits and vegetables, and the amount of DDT in conventional lettuce. And what really shocked me was the amounts were about the same. And I don't think it could be that the organic growers were lying, but I doubt that because organic growth, organic farming is very strictly regulated, but it demonstrated the ubiquity of pesticide flow in our environment and how even organic, you have to be quite careful about um, 
where you're located. Because if you're organic in the middle of a conventional area, you're going to um, get pesticides in your produce even um, when you're being very strict yourself. So one of the things I really hope for in organic farming is that it becomes regional and that there are you know entire regions that are free of pesticide use. What else can we as humans take away from the way bees interact with each other? I know you talk about kind of the interconnectedness and the lessons that we as humans can take away from them. Yeah, this, I've spent uh, a good part of my life with my head inside of a honeybee hive. And I've absorbed a lot of the lessons of how honeybees communicate and how they work and how they um, support their society. I would say one really important lesson for me and that I think carries over really well into human politics is understanding that for honeybees, an individual bee is in the hive to support the community. It's not in the hive for its own well-being, its own greed, its own acquisitiveness. It's in the hive to, to support the best possible community. And uh, individual bees are quite, they're not monotonous at all. We've done a lot of work just researching what individual bees do during their lifetimes. And they almost have their own signature. Each bee does different tasks at different times in different ways. And so they're actually remarkably individualistic. And yet that individualism is focused on the hive and on the doing what they can for the well-being of the hive. And I think that's a really important human lesson for us to think about is what are we in this world for? Are we in it to support our community or are we in it for our own selfish interests? And I have learned from bees that the greatest personal satisfaction comes from doing things that help others and that support the benefit, the growth, the health of communities. And I think if we all applied that precept from the bees to our human societies, we would be much better off. Uh, I've learned a lot about communication and how important it is to constantly be open and communicative and pass around information and not to be secretive because that's what bees do. They spend a lot of their time just communicating with each other. Um, and by having that full and open transference of information, everybody is aware of the state of the society and what needs to be done to um, improve it. I've learned a lot about work from bees. Um, Chaucer wrote about bees many, many centuries ago in which he coined the term busy as a bee. And uh, it turns out bees are not actually all that busy. They spend a considerable amount of their time resting. And um, I have taken that into my life. I, I've accomplished a fair bit in my life, but I'm not a workaholic. I spend a lot of time not working. And uh, when I work, I focus and I'm really there. But this idea that the more you work, the more you'll produce just really falls flat when you look at a bee society. And then when you transpose that idea to human societies, where you find out that um, you can actually accomplish a lot more by working less if you work smart and you work efficiently, but you also do that all important thing of, uh, of resting. How do the individual bees fall into their roles? Like they're born, I know we have the queen, but how, 
how do they know what to do or get kind of sectored off into serving their community? Well, the queen basically does two things. She lays eggs and she produces pheromones that tell chemicals that tell the bees that all is well in the hive, that she's there and she's laying eggs. But it's the workers, which are all female, that uh, really do everything. And they do, um, they work according to maybe two, um, two uh, precepts. The first is age-based. When a bee emerges as a young bee, the first thing it does is cleaning tasks. Then it'll move on to producing food in its own glands and feeding the young. Then it goes from there to building comb, producing wax and building the, the comb that's needed in the hive and capping cells. And then it goes to guard duty where it maybe stands at the entrance and protects the hive. And towards the end of its life, which in the summer is maybe 30 or 35 days long, the bee will go out and be a forager. And so this is, the bee does one thing at a time, which is another thing I've learned from bees. This idea that we can serially task and do multiple things, multitasking, it's just not true. There's lots of human research that shows that every time we try to do more than one thing at once, we do it poorly. So bees do single tasks and they move through their life doing one thing at a time. But the second thing they do is they're very sensitive to the needs of the hive. So even though there's this age-based division of labor, it can shift. If the hive needs more nurse bees to feed the young, then bees might start that task at a younger age and do it for a longer time. If there's a sudden discovery of nectar or pollen out in the field, some of the younger bees might get the message that, hey, there's some food out there. Let's become foragers at a younger age and go out there and get it. So they're both communicating, understanding what's needed in the hive, and that's superimposed on this age-based division of labor. You mentioned that the majority of the workers are female. So <laughs> what are the what are the male bees doing then? Well, that's that's not true, actually. The majority are not female. Oh. All all of them are female. Okay, so <laughs> there, there is no there is no work done by male bees. The queen is a female, the workers are females. The male bees are drones, they have only one function, and that is to um, leave the hive once they get to a certain age, once they're 10 or 12 days old, they leave the hive and they fly around looking for a queen to impregnate. And if they find a queen, this happens up in the air flying through um, what are called congregation areas where the male drone bees fly, congregate, they fly back and forth. And uh, if a queen goes through, they'll chase after her. And the lucky guy will um, mount her, flip over backwards, and then his genitalia explode into the queen and he drops to the ground and dies. Queens will mate. Queens, yeah, sounds horrible, doesn't it? Queens mate with um, probably 10 to 20 drones early in their lives. And then they carry the drone sperm in a special sack and use it for the next two or three or four years as they uh, lay eggs and fertilize them. So the drones are basically there to, uh, to mate. That's all they do. They do no work in the hive. They're thrown out every winter because uh, the colony doesn't want them to waste resources by you know, eating the honey that's in the hive. And then they produce new drones every spring. So it's a totally matriarchal society. 
Wow, that's crazy. You also mentioned that like um, in the summer, a bee would normally live 30 days or something. I could be misquoting, but how long does the queen live in comparison to a regular honey bee that's a female? Queen usually lives for a number of years. Depends on how many eggs she lays and how well impregnated she is. But I'd say on average two or three years. And then when she starts to fail, which usually means she's running out of sperm, uh, the colony will rear a new queen. When you say rear a new queen, like there are they choosing just one of the female bees, or is it like a special bee? Female, uh, female larvae, or female eggs when they're laid, have the potential to either become a worker or a queen. And the egg lasts for about three days, and then it hatches into a larva for five days. And during that five-day larval period. The food that it's fed determines whether it becomes a queen or becomes a worker. So if the colony is gonna swarm, which is how they reproduce, or their queen is failing, they'll feed a few of the larvae, you know, maybe five or 10 or 20 at the most, a special food, special blend of food that the workers produce called royal jelly. And that will turn its developmental pathway in the direction of queenliness. Otherwise they're fed regular food and they just um, will, will grow up and emerge as uh, worker bees. And is there only ever one queen allowed in the hive? Usually. Sometimes hives will maintain a couple of queens. Um, but it's more common to have just one queen in a hive at a time. And then is it true, like, if you have a hive and it needs to be relocated, like, they can just move the queen and the entire colony will follow? Yes and no. If you take a colony that has brood in it, you know, eggs and larvae and pupae, and you take the queen out, the bees won't follow her. They'll rear a new queen. They'll, they'll notice mm -hmm. that her, her pheromones are gone and they'll rear a new one. But if you take the worker bees and dump them outside the hive, they'll take to the air and they'll search for their queen. And so the, if you put the queen up in a cage and hang her in a tree, they'll find her quickly and produce a swarm around her. This is how people do... Uh, Bee beards. You know, you've probably seen pictures of people with beards of bees on their faces. You're either taking the queen bee and putting her in a cage underneath your chin or putting bee pheromones on your chin. And then the worker bees who you've dumped out of a hive will fly around it until they find what they think is their queen. Can the female bee sting as well, or is it just the men? Oh, no, the male bees have no stinger. Oh. It's only the female bees that sting. And the queen bee can sting, but her sting has no barbs on it. So she'll rarely sting. And if she does, she won't die. But the worker bees have a sting with barbs. And when she stings, it sticks into your skin. The bee pulls away and dies. But left behind are the stinger and alarm chemicals that are given off that attract other bees into sting. And also uh, the muscles keep pumping for the next 30 or 60 seconds, pumping in additional venom. So if you do get stung by a honeybee, you should take your fingernail and scrape that stinger out as quickly as you can. Don't squeeze it because if you squeeze it, you'll be squeezing in additional venom. Uh, that's one difference between a bee and a wasp sting is wasps generally don't leave their stinger behind. And most, actually most bees don't leave their stinger behind. That's fairly unique to, uh, to honeybees. And have you, how many times have you been stung by a honeybee? Oh, thousands. 
I say the most I've ever got stung at once is probably in a day is probably 50 to 100 times. But in my lifetime, I've gotten stung. I couldn't even guess how many thousands of times I've been stung. And why is it that they sting? Why do they sting? They're protecting their hive. Bees, honeybees will rarely sting away from the hive because there's nothing to protect. If you step on a honeybee in the grass, they'll probably sting you. But bees flying around on flowers are just not in a stinging mode. There's nothing, they're not defending anything. But back at the hive, they're, they can be defensive. And so they're stinging to drive away potential uh, predators or parasites. So they're basically like sacrificing their lives for the hive. Yeah, I remember there might be uh, 20 or 30 or 40, 50,000 worker bees in a hive. And so to lose a few for the hive is not a big deal. I want to talk about beekeepers. So in the vegan community, it's highly contested. I mean, people saying that um, honey shouldn't be eaten because it's cruel the way the bees are treated with sugar water replaced for their honey. I mean, can you illuminate a little bit on that? Well, honey is produced mostly through management. And management is something we do in agriculture to maximize productivity. So typical management for honeybees would involve um, growing the hive to a size larger than it naturally would through some artificial, just the way you manipulate the hive. So instead of having only 20,000 bees in the summer, it might have 50,000 bees. Uh, beekeepers will take away most of the honey at least the majority of the honey in the fall, because that's the product, and they'll replace it with sugar water. Um, and many beekeepers, probably most, uh, use various kinds of pesticides in their hive to kill mites, to kill fung fungus, to kill other things. They use antibiotics. Uh, some beekeepers don't. Some beekeepers keep bees more naturally, but more typically, a beekeeper will use various chemicals in the hive. And so if you object to that kind of treatment of animals, then you might object to um, using honey. Uh, you know, honey is um, it's not produced by bees, it's processed by bees. So it's a bit different than something like milk. Uh, honey is basically nectar that bees uh, add enzymes that break down the sugars to simpler forms. And they add some natural antibiotics like hydrogen peroxide, and they put it in cells and they diminish the water content so it can last for a long period over the winter. So they're not producing it from their own bodies. They are simply taking the nectar, processing it, and placing it in cells. So some vegans will eat honey. Some object because they think bees are, um, it's a, be product like milk is an animal product. And so they, which isn't true, but that's their perception. Or they may object to the husbandry that goes into beekeeping. So those are the, I think those are some of the reasons that a vegan might or might not choose to uh, eat honey. From your perspective, purchasing honey, I guess supporting beekeepers, I mean, is this a kind of necessary mean because we need to be continuously supporting 
the increase of the bee population rather than the opposite? I think it really depends on what your priorities are in life. Honeybees are not native to North America or South America for that matter. They are native to Africa and Europe. Oh. And, other, and other species are native to Asia, not, not the honeybees we have here. So if what's really important to you is supporting native species, then, I, then honeybees probably won't be very important to you. Um, if supporting beekeeping is important and the health of bees, then buying honey is a critical part of that. And it, I would just be careful that the honey you buy comes from a reputable source. There's a lot of honey that's tainted with, um, a lot of the mass produced honey in North America uh, is tainted by products coming in from overseas that may have pesticide, high pesticide impacts or not even be honey. It could be corn sugar, corn syrup, uh, other things, molasses. The largest food fraud case in United States history involved honey involving importing about $80 million a year of products from China that were labeled as honey that were not, and were then packed by American honey packers and sold as honey. Uh, so I would really encourage people to buy local and make sure that the honey you're getting really does come from your local beekeeper. You know, it's a great way to support local agriculture. Most beekeepers are not only reputable, but really sensitive to the environment around them. And they know the flowers their bees are coming from. So if you can buy local honey, you're supporting not only your local honeybees, but you're also supporting a sort of artisanal local food industry. And so I always choose to, well, I don't buy honey very often, but when I, if I did buy honey, I would really buy it from uh, people that farmers, I know, beekeepers I know and respect. In the vegan community, we hear about a lot of practices from beekeeping that a lot of people don't consider vegan, obviously, like some say that they kill off hives after the season and start from new or they rip off the queen's wings. Is this true? Are you a vegan? I'm vegan, yeah, but personally, even especially after this conversation, the jury's sort of out for me and honey. <laughs> in Canada, in the old days, about half of Canadian bees were killed off every fall and new colonies started by importing packages of bees from the United States every spring. That practice stopped in 1987 when the border was closed to those importations due to um, some pest issues. So beekeepers no longer kill their colonies. Uh, they try to maintain them. So that's not true any longer. Clipping the wings, um, I'd say some beekeepers do that to keep their queens from leaving the hive in a swarm, but I wouldn't say it's a very common practice. It's first, not necessary. And second, um, it's just work that you don't really need to do. So some beekeepers may still do that, but I'd say it's a fairly, fairly rare practice. The reason I'm asking about like the vegan angle, because a lot of my listeners are vegan and it's so highly contested. And I think sometimes we don't see the forest for the trees. Like you said, we get so caught up in the fact that people consider it an animal byproduct that it's mixed, but is that doing damage by then um, pushing a narrative that honey is bad when in reality supporting honey could be 
a really good thing for both the bees and our ecological system. So I guess people need to determine for themselves like where they stand on that because it doesn't seem to be clear cut. Yeah, I I have no reservations about eating honey because I think it's a good pure product that the beekeepers that I would get it from are very respectful of their bees. The um, I think the, the if you're vegan and you're really trying to decide whether to eat honey, there's two questions I'd ask yourself. One is fundamentally, are you against any animal husbandry whatsoever? Because beekeepers manage bees and they do things to manage them that involve um, things that might be different than what would happen in a wild colony. So if you're against keeping animals for any reason, then I would not eat honey. But if you're okay with keeping animals in a humane way that's sensitive to the bees, then um, eating honey makes more sense because you're not eating an animal product, you're eating a plant product that just happens to pass through the bees. Um, and I, what I would pay attention more pay attention to is how the beekeeper is keeping their bees. Uh, beekeepers range like all farmers. Some of them are extremely attuned to the bees. It's a spiritual experience to them to go in the hive and they care deeply for their bees and they treat them with the utmost respect. Other beekeepers, you know, tend to be more commercial perhaps. Um, they might care about their bees, but you know, the product is comes first. And so they'll do whatever it takes to produce high quantities of honey and to use their bees to pollinate crops. So I would, as if I was a vegan, I would seek beekeepers who um, demonstrate that they do have a deep caring for their bees and that they are fostering good practices when they keep bees and that, that they have a deep respect because the things that we learn from bees uh, are not just about producing the honey. They're about the deep relationship that we as humans need to cultivate in a healthier way with the environment around us. And bees can be a conduit for probing and understanding and buying into that idea that we're all on this planet together and we would need to collaborate and cooperate uh, and create healthy systems. And if you're that kind of beekeeper, then I'd say perhaps being, perhaps that kind of beekeeping is consistent with what a vegan person, person who, who chooses to eat vegan might, um, might accomplish. I think that was so beautifully put. A follow-up to that is things I've heard about kind of medicinal purposes of honey is that it can help with like seasonal allergies if you seek out local honey. Is there any truth to that? I don't I actually don't recommend local honey for allergy reasons because allergies are so poorly understood. Local honeys will have a very small amount of local pollen in them because bees collect both pollen and nectar from flowers. But continued exposure to small amounts of allergens, uh, sometimes it creates a stronger allergy rather than reducing it. Mm -hmm. So it can work either way. And uh, you don't really know ahead of time. Um, <coughs> I suggest local honey for other reasons, which is it's a good way to help understand what's, um, what's blooming in your community. Honey does have some medicinal uses. Uh, it's particularly good as a wound dressing. And in fact, there's 
something like 20 companies around the world that sell gauze pads impregnated with honey that you can put on, doctors can put on wounds, which reduces the need for antibiotics and is probably equally effective for many types of wounds. Uh, it's, it's because honey has a low water content. It does have natural antibiotics in it. And um, it's not a environment in which bacteria can grow very readily. So for that, wow. for that, for that reason, it's like if, if, you, if you're in a beehive and you, uh, I don't know, you scrape yourself, you have a cut, I would just reach in and grab a little bit of honey and slap it on your arm because uh, that'll help protect it from getting infected. Do you encounter a lot of people who have like their own little bee situation in their backyard? Like, could I set up my own hive if I wanted to? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a, uh, I'm not sure what kind of environment you live in, but if you're in a city, um, there's tons and tons of uh, people keeping bees and more so every year. Beekeeping has just exploded in urban environments and it's very both legal and very feasible to have a colony in your backyard. I suggest you take a course or work with an established beekeeper because you know beekeeping is like anything else. It's um, you need to learn how to do it well, but uh, absolutely no reason you can't keep a colony in your backyard. And in fact, colonies in cities tend to outproduce colonies in rural areas, largely because cities have such diverse and abundant uh, plantings. So much going on all year long with the nectar producing nectar producing plants. What happens in the winter time? Like if a, a beekeeper has the bees, do they have like a shed that they put the, I know nothing about how they survive during the winter. Or, yeah. Don't need to. Some beekeepers in the really, really cold parts of Canada will move their bees indoors, but most beekeepers keep their bees outside. And sometimes you wrap them to help keep them warm. You make sure you leave them with plenty of honey because that's where they're, that's how they survive is they eat honey all winter and shiver. And by shivering, they generate heat. So that, you know, it could be 30 below outside and uh, you stick your hand in the beehive and it'll feel warm. Uh, even in the depth of the coldest winters, the cluster of bees will be maybe 20 degrees centigrade. So they, they manage to keep the hive quite warm. And once they start rearing brood, rearing larvae, they'll up the temperature to about 33 degrees. So it can be quite balmy inside while it's freezing outside. And these hives, like local um, beekeepers, are they, the bees they have able to pollinate the local farms? Like, is that how that generally works, that they're flying and like pollinating our agriculture? Yeah. Uh, for mass agriculture, though very large commercial systems, they rent honeybees that are brought in from sometimes all over the country to pollinate crops when they're in bloom. But you know, more locally, you would hope that there's enough wild bees to uh, pollinate or just a few hives, you know, a few backyard hives will pollinate pretty much everything in a neighborhood. So, you know, not only is your hive in the backyard doing you good, but it's also um, pollinating fruit trees and vegetable crops uh, in your neighbor's yards, probably up to a, you know, a couple of kilometers away. When you say pollinating, I mean, I've never kind of thought about it, but what is happening there? Like they're going over to the flower and doing what? That's a naive question, but. No, it's not naive at all. They're helping the, bee, the plant have sex. It's, um, it's quite erotic actually. 
but I won't go into that. I'll keep this in the, <laughs> in a, you know, good for all audiences way. Uh, the bee goes to a flower and uh, in getting the nectar or the pollen from the flower, bees are very hairy and their body gets coated with pollen, which is essentially the sperm of plants. And then they'll move to another flower. And as they're on the other flower, some of that pollen will rub off and makes its way down to the um, ovule of, of the uh, plant and thereby uh, pollinates the, um, the plant. So the bee is essentially moving the pollen from one plant to another, affecting fertilization, which is how um, many plants uh, create seed and fruit. Um, for many plants, being visited by one bee isn't enough. Like blueberries, for example, you get the maximum yield and size and sweetness of blueberries when they're when each flower is visited by up to uh, by about 20 bees. So sometimes it takes multiple bee visits to um, adequately pollinate a crop. Okay, so they're pollinating the plants and is there no other way that these plants can be pollinated other than the bees? It depends on the plant. Things like wheat and corn, many trees are um, wind pollinated. So they don't require bees at all. But certainly many of our other agricultural crops require bees to move the pollen and there is no other way. Well, there is another way. Um, in areas where there are problems with bees, there's places in China where every spring they hire hundreds of workers with paintbrushes, tiny little brushes to go around in the apple orchards and move the pollen by hand from one flower to another. But that's neither efficient nor as effective. They do that because the bees are dead. There's been so much environmental degradation that there just are no bees. Um, so bees are clearly, for those, you know, for any crop that's bee pollinated, I don't think there's ever been found a better system than letting the bees um, do their jobs. I can't believe they bring them in to pollinate. That's so interesting. And then another thing I want to touch on is the hive. Like they make the hive, but what is that actually made of? Um, well, two things. First, uh, to go back to your thought about bees being moved, it's more common in the United States, but every year, the large majority of honeybee colonies in the United States, well over 2 million colonies, are moved to California every February just to pollinate almonds. So it's a huge business and a huge enterprise. It's less so in Canada, but even here in Canada, more and more we find bees are moving from Alberta, Manitoba into British Columbia to pollinate um, blueberries. They move, they've been bees moved from Alberta to the Maritimes to pollinate blueberries. They're moved around to pollinate fruit trees. So because wild bees are so depauperate, uh, growers are, you know, have to purchase or rent and bring in bees for, for long distances. In terms of what a hive is, um, the beekeeper provides the wood and a, a frame and the bees build the comb, which is made out of wax that they produce in glands in their abdomen. So it's a collaboration between the beekeeper providing the domicile and the bees themselves building out the, um, the comb on which they live and prosper. The comb, the comb is interesting in itself because it's like an ecosystem. 
like there's gotta be a lot of parallels there from the comb to how we live as well. It's like an apartment building almost, right? <laughs> Very much. But, um, you know, almost every cell is exactly the same as every other cell. So it's quite homogeneous. The bees are very precise builders and they build the cells to be almost exactly the same size every time. And uh, so it's more monotonous than a typical human neighborhood, but it provides the same functions. You know, it's a place to rest. It's a place to store your food. It's a place to rear your young. And um, it's a place to gather during the winter and cluster to um, make it through, through an adverse period. Interesting. Well, this has been ridiculously educational. I'm trying to think if I had any more questions come in about the bees. I guess my kind of ending question here is, I know we can plant plants, we can support local beekeepers. Is there anything like really tangible that you suggest people can do if they really feel like they want to help the bees? I'd be really careful about the things you purchase. I'd be thoughtful about, um, you know, your your comments about vegans remind me that um, sometimes we don't respect each other's opinions enough. We argue and we think, well, I do it this way, I'm right. You do it that way, you're wrong. I think um, this vegan question of honey or not honey is a really interesting question. And... I would have equal respect for those who choose to eat honey as for those who choose not to eat honey. And maybe one thing we can all do is just be a little less judgmental about each other's decisions and just try to be a little more compassionate and interested without judging about why you make a particular choice. Honestly, I don't care if you do or don't eat honey. I'm interested in the reasons, but I'm not gonna judge you as a person by the decision you make about whether you think honey is appropriate to eat or not. It's a really interesting discussion, but it's not a place for judgment. So I'd say that's one thing that people can do in general. Learn as much as you can about bees. Um, try to buy, you know, if you do purchase honey, try to buy it locally. Uh, do everything you can to uh, support and maintain wild bee populations. And that's also something you can do through your purchase power you know, by buying from farms that are bee friendly, you're helping the, uh, helping the population of diverse and abundant wild bees to, uh, to hopefully recover. So an awareness, sensitivity, um, I think I'd, uh, I, that's where I would um, really put my efforts and, you know, tangible things like, you know, stop using all those pesticides, stop mowing your lawn so often. Um, Think about the bees first, rather than uh, thinking about um, whether your lawn looks immaculate or not. Have you witnessed any pressure on our government systems and intervention into helping increase the bee populations since there is such a kind of domino effect on our society with the decline of the bee population? Oh yeah, there's a lot of things going on. There's a great organization here in Canada, well, in the United States also, called Pollinator Partnership that really promotes um, good practices around bees. Uh, many, many municipalities due to lobbying by residents have been, um, have been uh, promoting bee-friendly practices. Here in Vancouver, 
Uh, we almost never use pesticides. Uh, there's a lot of plantings that are focused on improving bees. Uh, lots of people are putting out community gardens that have nesting sites for wild bees in them. So citizens do and can are doing quite a lot. And governments, particularly locally, have really bought into um, saving the bees. I'm not sure what, what city or place you live in, but uh, wherever you are, I have no doubt there's um, groups and local governments that are aware of bees now and doing what they can to uh, preserve and grow the bee populations. Thank you so much for coming on. This has just been so, I cannot wait for people to listen. Where can people learn more, find your books, delve more into the bees? Because I know we've just scratched the surface here. Well, there's two books I'd recommend. One, uh, which won the Governor General's Award in, in 2015, is called Bee Time Lessons from the Hive. Uh, that's a really great book to learn about um, what we can learn from bees. Uh, it also has a lot of these education, you know, environmental and conservation issues, but also talks a lot about work and collaboration and presence and slowing down and all the stuff we talked about today. My most recent book, I actually co-wrote with a poet, Renee Saragini Saklikar. It's called Listening to the Bees. And it's a alternating sets of essays and poems, uh, very much a call and response kind of book that Renee and I did that also is kind of goes deep into some of the um, aspects of uh, what bees have meant to her as a poet and me as a scientist. Uh, both books are quite available. I really encourage you to buy them from your local independent bookstore. Uh, any bookstore can order it in for you. Um, and, uh, you know, if you can't resist and you got to have it tomorrow and you want the absolute cheapest price, okay, go to Amazon. But really, independent bookstores are the lifeblood of, for writers. And uh, my books have been successful largely because they've really been promoted by the independent bookstores. So if you can, if at all possible, order it from your local indie and um, you'll not only enjoy the read, but you'll be supporting a you know, good, strong local community oriented businesses. Which is more important than ever now, especially after the last year, I think we can all agree. So love that note. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been fantastic. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Well, folks, another Plant Pod episode in the books. And wasn't Mark just fabulous? I learned so much in this episode. I'm curious if you're listening and you're vegan, direct message me on Instagram after listening to this and tell me whether you would eat local honey. Because I think there's a super interesting conversation to have there and I'll share my thoughts with you as well and if you feel so inclined like you really think someone else could benefit from this information feel free to share it in your stories or on your Facebook page and of course your reviews mean the world to me thank you again so much for listening to this episode and I'll see you next week